We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. As 2023 draws to a close, we're taking a look back at some of our highlights from the last year on Intelligence Squared and hearing from a few of the team who are making the podcast happen. We're talking to producers Bella Soames and Faye Adabita today. Faye you'll be very aware of as one of the regular voices on the podcast. Bella, perhaps slightly less so, but you'll definitely know the things she's been making. Both Faye and Bella are integral parts of our commercial projects team, creating really outstanding content all year round. Let's hear from them both now. Bella, it's been such a busy year on the podcast production side. What are you going for with your pick of 2023? Okay, so I'm going to go for the Futureverse with guests Simon Reeve and Christina Lamb talking about risk. What is the Futureverse? So the Futureverse is a podcast that we make for one of our clients who are called Ytree. We've been working with Ytree the whole of this year, and they provide something called financial life intelligence, which basically means that they want to make finance an efficient, transparent, and meaningful experience. So in this episode, we were thinking about the fact that investment often involves people thinking about risk and how much risk they want to take and how much risk they can stomach. So we invited two people, Simon Reeve and Christina Lamb, who are both massive risk takers themselves, but in a completely different way to talk a bit about what that really means. I don't know, are you familiar with Simon Reeve and Christina Lamb? Yeah, Simon's a journalist, writer, broadcaster and documentary maker. Can often see him gallivanting around the world to far-flung places for outlets such as the BBC. While Christina is the Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, she's been covering conflict around the globe for over three decades, I think. So they both know what they're talking about when it comes to risk. Did anything really stick out for you, Bella, during the chat? So I think what was really nice, and I didn't realise before the recording, Um, was that Simon and Christina and Kamal Ahmed, the host, all knew each other because they'd all previously worked together at the Times. Um, Simon Reeve started out at the Times as a paperboy when he was really young. So it kind of felt like getting the gang back together. They hadn't seen each other in a while. I think in terms of the content, I think what really stuck out in relation to risk was that Simon and Christina take risks every day. I mean, they go to war zones, they find themselves in what we would think to be extremely dangerous situations. But actually, for them, both of them agreed that often the riskiest moments are the most mundane or the the things that we would think are mundane. So sometimes they have to get into a car and there might not be a seatbelt or they have to really advocate for there to be a seatbelt because actually it's driving in a car with no seatbelt that is actually riskier than being in the war zone itself. So it was just such an interesting insight into the psychology of risk, I guess. And it was really, really insightful. Let's have a listen now. This is Simon Reeve and Christina Lamb in conversation with broadcaster and journalist Kamal Ahmed. I think it's safe to say that both our guests can speak with authority on risk 
and we're delighted to have brought them both together. Simon, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Now, Simon, I'm going to start with you first. I think you and Christina may have met before. Just take us through that to kick us off. Oh, well, so I was, as you said, I was a postboy on the Sunday Times. That's how I started. I didn't have the most illustrious education before becoming an adult. I dropped out of school when I was 17, 16, 17. I was on the dole for a bit and then I got a job working at the Sunday Times, sorting the post. And over a couple of years, I graduated um, from being there at half five in the morning, sorting the mail to being, I think, a junior cub or junior home news researcher or something like that. And then a researcher, brackets, home news, and then that sort of gentle climb up a, a low ladder. And I remember, you know, obviously sorting the post for Christina, although it's possible that's just a yarn that I've invented in my head because Christina may have joined a little bit later. I'm just wondering why I never seemed to get any mail. <laughs> ah, all those scoops, Christina, that got lost yes. in the post room. You, you, could have won, you could have won even more awards, Christina, than you have done. Christina, give us a little bit of the opening. I mean, the amazing journeys you went on from a very, very young age. I know we'll get to this a bit more, but just tell us, just give us a little potted history of the career. So actually, I mean, I never set out to be a war correspondent. I really wanted to be a novelist. So I had this idea of going abroad and working as a journalist for a while to have some adventures and then go and rent a garret somewhere and write my great novel. But I started off, as you said at the beginning, in Afghanistan. And that was really by accident because I got invited to a wedding in Pakistan. And it wasn't an ordinary wedding. It was Benazir Bhutto's wedding. I had interviewed her in England when she was here in exile. And I was an intern for the Financial Times just starting out. And she was very nice to me. And the day that I interviewed her, she just announced her engagement to Azif Ali Zadari. So her flat was full of bouquets of flowers. So maybe because of that, I don't know. But some months later, I was then working in Birmingham as a trainee reporter for Central TV, most junior person in the newsroom. And I came home one day and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation to a wedding. And it was Benazir's wedding in Pakistan. So of course I went and it was the first time I'd ever been to Pakistan. It was an amazing introduction to the country because her wedding was so colourful and so many interesting people were there and it went on for a week. And every evening after all the sort of ceremonial events, there were gatherings with her political colleagues to talk about how to topple Pakistan's military dictator, General Zia. So I was absolutely fascinated. These people, some of them were not much older than me, and they'd been arrested, tear gassed, tortured for trying to bring democracy to their country. And at that point, I mean, the most dangerous thing I'd ever done was find my way home late at night from central London after a gig when the trains had stopped. So I was really intrigued. So I came back and couldn't really imagine covering local news in Birmingham anymore. And so I gave him my notice and told everybody I was going to live in Pakistan. But when I went to talk to foreign editors about freelancing from Pakistan, nobody was interested. They all said that General Zia had been there for 11 years, 
nothing was going to change. And then a couple of them said, well, we are interested in Afghanistan, because at that point it was under Soviet occupation. So I said, okay, I'll go and cover that. <laughs> so I went to live in Peshawar on the border with Pakistan, Afghanistan, and started traveling with the Afghan Mujahideen into Afghanistan and fell in love with it. What's really fascinating hearing both of you speak is how you don't sort of decide to take risk, but that it can come to you and become part of your life. That notion that the journey into situations where you have to start managing risk can come from so many different places. And just hearing your two stories about how you started your careers, I think, really reveals that. Christina, how do you gear change, if I could put it like that, between Ukraine, Afghanistan? How do you gear change back into what might be described as ordinary life? That's the hardest thing of my job, I think. It, to come back, I think that maybe the most jarring time of that was in 2006, I was with the three parachute regiment in Helmand in Afghanistan, and we were ambushed and completely surrounded for hours running through these muddy fields. We were really, really lucky to get out. And one of the things that kept me going and running in this sort of 45 centigrade heat with no water, with all this firing going on, was knowing that it was my son's birthday at the end of the week. And it was his seventh birthday and that I had promised to be back to host a football party in a park in southwest London. And so I did get back and it was so strange because literally I arrived at Heathrow on the Sunday and went straight to Tesco's to buy like bread and ham and then went to the park to have this party. And I was absolutely covered still in thorns and bruises from jumping in and out of these muddy ditches to try not to be shot. And my story about it was on the, the front page of the Sunday Times. And, and yeah, I was in this party with all these six and seven-year-olds in this park. And that really felt very, very odd indeed. Simon, did it change your attitude to the work you do or your attitude to risk in the work you do when you became a father? Not immediately. The first place I went to after my son Jake was born, within a couple of weeks after he was born, actually, was was to Mogadishu and in Somalia. And it was a it was a tricky time there. But that was I knew that was part of the deal, as it were. I was making a series where I was traveling around the Indian Ocean. It had been my idea, the way the the trips had just ended up being planned out like that was it meant that I was going after Jake was born. It wasn't to make a point or anything. And I think as he grew and became, has become more of a, a grown up little man, which happens as you'll know, surprisingly quickly, then I suppose I felt a little bit more conscious of his existence and my responsibility to balance providing for him with with not taking necessary crazy risks that aren't mitigated by by reward I suppose so everything I do I've got to feel that it's justified I feel like I've got to be able to look him in the eye and say this is why I did it I don't want him to 
live his life without a father. Definitely, definitely not. And I had a, a partner earlier in life who had suffered the catastrophic loss of her father in the sort of circumstances we're talking about. And I know and I knew how it always not affected her for a, a, a period or a decade or anything, but would do for always. So I'm very conscious of that. This is my job. This is what I do. I feel there's some justification for it. I feel I can say to him, look, I'm not there on a jolly. I'm there to film this or film that and explain it. And I think that's the real learning for me, that whereas I would have slightly more, not blindly, but perhaps with slightly more cavalierly started on projects and gone to strange places, now I need to have a clear understanding in my own head, just a slightly clearer. So it's not it's not a revolutionary thought. It's more of a slight evolution and, and a calming as you as you grow, mature and get a bit older. Christina, similar question. Does does becoming has becoming a parent changed your attitude to your appetite for risk and how you manage it? Yes, of course, because you're responsible for somebody else. I think in my case, I mean, I've always covered conflicts, right, from when I was starting out. So when I look back, actually, at the things I did when I was 22, I mean, I think then you think you're indestructible and, you know, you nothing will happen to you. Although actually the job has got more dangerous. But what happened with me is my son was actually born in 1999. And so I did think about changing what I was doing. And I took a sabbatical in 2001 to actually, because I also write books, I took a sabbatical to work on a book. And my husband's Portuguese, and so I was going to write the book in Portugal. We literally arrived in Portugal on the 11th of September 2001. Actually, we arrived on the 10th. The 11th morning was my first morning that I was planning to start working on this book. And then I got a phone call, and we didn't even have a TV where we were, so we had to go to a local chicken restaurant, and we watched the 9-11 attacks. So, of course, my sabbatical got cancelled from my paper. I think, Christina, hearing from both of you, it is that notion of a lot of this is driven by a personal desire and engagement in, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it is something that has a nobility about it, about explaining, exploring and holding to account around these vitally important issues, which I think is something to do with the DNA of being a journalist. Simon, could I could I go back again? When you're thinking about risk, did, were you always somebody who, in your 20s, did you imagine yourself to be a risk taker? Is there such a thing or was it a different motivation? I think there are. I think there is such a thing. Yes, I think I've certainly met people over the years who take risks because they need to feel that that makes them alive. And I would, I would say that yes, I I take some risks, but I don't really take it for the sake of the risk. I take it for the reward, and the reward has got to be quite clear for me whether that's the content we're creating or whether it's the article, the book, the whatever. Or to be honest, you know, to to provide for my family. I don't do I don't take risks, I would say, for personal joy or personal gain in that sort of emotional sense. It's got to be more practical or or to a certain degree moral or financial almost. 
was I always? Yeah, I probably was a bit as a lad. So when I was in my early teens, I was I was pretty naughty. When you talk about risk, I think being in my little BMX gang, cycling no hands down Acton High Street with my brother on the back of the bike, weaving in and out of cars and and causing trouble, really. I mean, that's that's that strikes me as cavalierly risky and stupid. But I, I had, I mean, I had by my time in my mid-teens, I, I had trouble getting out of bed. I wasn't, I was, it wasn't about taking risks. It was about being able to get up in the morning. I was in a complete state of dark depression. And then for me, taking a risk was getting out of bed and putting one step in front of the other and going to the newsagent, getting a paper and going through the job ads. And that felt risky and and scary that and and I think those two elements are quite important together so that that was my that was me starting with risk in many ways as a as a young adult and then when I started working as I said I started working as a postboy but opportunities very quickly came my way and I was I was somebody who said yes a lot that didn't necessarily come naturally to me but I was keen to have a chance. I was keen to sense that a door was opening a crack and then stepping through it. And although I was often terrified of what I was doing, I started working on some investigations when I was at the paper. I started, One of my big breaks was tracking down these two South African neo-Nazi terrorists who were on the run in the UK and going to find them uh, in Boston first thinking it was Boston in the States, of course, and worrying I didn't have a passport, and then discovering it was Boston in Lincolnshire and having to retrieve them from this little market town. And that was that was a scary and risky endeavour that um, I could have said no to. But once you've said yes, once you've sort of, maybe I'm just very pliable, once you've said yes to something, then you've got to, I feel I've got to deliver on that. So whether it's, okay, I've agreed, I'm going to go and get these terrorists, I better go and find them, or whether it's, I'm going to travel around the Indian Ocean. So of course, Part of that idea is to go to Bangladesh. It's to see the problems of Somalia as well as the glory of Mozambique and and Madagascar. So once I've committed, I tend to stick with things. But it can just sometimes be that little saying yes that gets you into a situation you hadn't quite expected or prepared for. And I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't personally say I am a natural risk taker, but I've come to be fairly comfortable with taking risks. I wrote a book on. Al-Qaeda, it became a book about Al-Qaeda in the 1990s after the first attack on the World Trade Center. And that probably was my real introduction to a proper serious risk. And in many ways, I don't think I've ever really taken quite as many risks as I did while I was on my own, um, without a safety net, without anyone to say, are you sure? And so I took a few risks then that I perhaps now regret. Christina, take us through similar journey for you. Obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, and we, we mentioned at the outset of this this podcast, Afghanistan at 22. Tell us a bit, A, about your experience of doing that, the amazing things you actually went through when you arrived. And then, and then let's broaden out into how has the conversation changed in our industry and, frankly, I'm sure in many others. When I started out, of course, there was none of this. And I just went off on my own. And there was no mobile phones. There was no satellite phones in Afghanistan where I was going there were no phones. And so I would go off for weeks and nobody knew where I was. And I I used to worry a bit about my mom getting worried. So I'd leave postcards with friends to post to her 
while I was away so that she wouldn't realize that I disappeared somewhere. But actually, the post was so bad from Pakistan, I'm not sure it really they arrived until I came back anyway. So actually, I mean, there, of course, weren't many women doing this job then, although that wasn't something I particularly thought about until later on. And so it was often quite hard to persuade the Afghan Mujahideen to take me because they'd say, you know, like women don't go to war. But I did persuade this group at one point to take me on the backs of their motorbikes to Kandahar and spent three weeks traveling around Kandahar with these guys who ended up becoming the Taliban, actually. But then when the Russians pulled out, there was a lot of pressure on the Afghan Mujahideen to capture a city to show that they could actually control some area. And the nearest city to Pakistan was Jalalabad. So they were really, many of them didn't want to do this because they knew that there would be very high casualties if they tried to take a city. So they went in and Pakistan intelligence ISI, which was kind of controlling everything, closed the border to stop people going in because they didn't want journalists to see what was happening. So everybody, all the journalists there were trying to find a way in. And eventually an Afghan friend said to me, we've got these ambulances going in so we could hide you in the ambulance. So I said, great. So I hid under the floor of the ambulance they had all these sort of blankets at the back which were actually all had been soaked in dettol disinfectant and so actually by the time we crossed the border I think I was quite high on the fumes of this and then we drove from the border to Jalalabad and it was pretty clear very quickly that the whole thing was quite disastrous because the roads were being bombed by the Afghan Air Force or possibly still the Russians. But loads of people were fleeing the city because the Mujahideen were trying to take it and they were firing rockets in. So people were being caught between the rockets and the shelling. And thousands of people were killed. And so it was the first time I'd really seen like mass casualties. And we were in a convoy of three ambulances and one of the ambulances got hit by one of the Russian bombings. So our ambulance like pulled straight off the road to the side and then they said that they were going to go back because it was too dangerous. So I said, but you're an ambulance. You're supposed to go and collect casualties. And they said, no, it's too dangerous. So they turned back and I didn't want to go back because then I was on the outskirts of Jalalabad. So I got them to drop me at a kind of sort of tea place, almost like a resting place for some of the Mujahideen. And then it was difficult because I wasn't with any group. I was just on my own there. So I had to persuade them to take me. So I think that was a case where I was just so, I never thought about anything except the story. I was completely determined to get in and see what was happening. And yeah, I probably wanted to be like the first to get in as well. And and so I thought, I mean, now I would be much more careful about what I was doing. But then I was just completely, I've got to get in, I've got to see what's happening. And I did eventually. It's changed a lot. And really, I think it changed around, first of all, around the time of the war in Iraq, because 
we were not able to get war insurance without going on a hostile environment course. So that's the first time I did a course. And you might remember people were very worried that Saddam had the famous chemical weapons so and biological weapons. So we would we had to go on a really bizarre training, which where you were given these little this pack of little papers so that you could know what kind of chemical or biological weapon was being used against you, which didn't seem much use to me, given that you would, you know, by that time, you would be dead, really, or about to be dead. Um, so and I remember the first time I did the hostile environment course in the beginning of 2003, basically learning that everything I'd been doing for the previous 15 years was wrong. But somehow I'd survived. So I was a little bit perturbed by by this. And then I think for us, certainly at the Sunday Times, things changed a lot when our colleague Marie Colvin was killed in Syria in 2011, because that really brought home the risk. And since then, we now have to do these risk assessments before we travel, which are actually, I hate doing them because you have to do things like put an exit plan right on it. I mean, how do I know an exit plan if I'm in Afghanistan where there are no, pretty much no diplomats now, no only Afghan airlines flying in and out. It's very, you know, if something happens to you, you're, you really are on your own. What kind of exit plan am I going to put? I don't have somebody personal who's going to come and extract me from <laughs> the mountains in Pactia or somewhere. So, some of this, I think it's a bit of an exercise in executives covering themselves. Christina Lamb and Simon Reeve there, speaking with Kamal Ahmed for the Future First podcast. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Okay, so now I want to hear your pick, Faye. What are you going to go for? Yes, so mine doesn't have as much risk involved, but hopefully just as interesting. My staff pick is Jude Law, an episode from our series How I Found My Voice, which is a series full of great deep dive discussions with famous and interesting figures from actors to writers and artists, and it's hosted by the journalist Samira Ahmed. So obviously Jude Law needs no introduction. He's been in a million films. The Talented Mr. Ripley is one of my favourite films of all time. I also love Fantastic Beasts and the Grand Budapest Hotel. But I guess so unique to have an hour with someone who's at the top of his game like that. What was it that you liked about the conversation, Faye? It was fascinating to hear how Judas transformed himself over his very long and varied career. He talked a bit about his childhood love for Charlie Chaplin, how he'd been fascinated by Charlie Chaplin's physicality and it had been a big influence on him growing up as an actor. He also talked a little bit about how his good looks have affected people's perception of his acting. So one of his co-stars had actually said that she saw him as a character actor trapped in a leading man's body, which I found quite interesting. I think he's done quite a few roles that rest quite heavily on his good looks, which I think we can all agree on. But he's also done things that are slightly different. So yeah, loved hearing about the different contrasts and the roles that he's taken. Okay, well, I can't wait to listen. So let's dive in. This is Jude Law in conversation with Samira Ahmed. Jude Law, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you. It's lovely to see you. So Jude, I always want to take people back to the start. Mini Jude, what was he like growing up in South East London? I would describe him as um, full of energy and enthusiasm and physicality. I love sport and um, make-believe from a very young age. I have memories of taking little figures and playing with them in parks and on the road and creating, I suppose, a world. You know, it's so easy to look back, isn't it, and make those connections and say, oh, I was creating drama or situation. But I remember making up games with my sister. And I grew up in a household where imagination and storytelling was a big part of our life, really. My parents were teachers. They read a lot and encouraged us to read a lot. And um, my sister was a phenomenal playmate. We made up huge, great games and fantasies and and then my parents also had a passion for theatre and, and film, but specifically theatre, really, which manifested in us all being kind of members of a local amateur dramatic society in Eltham. I remember coming down the stairs and all our furniture often being sort of removed from the house because they were using on a set somewhere. And I'd come downstairs and the kitchen would be filled with adults drinking coffee and smoking and rehearsing. So there was always theatre and creativity going on in the house. And uh, it was a place I felt very comfortable. I was very curious and uh, I embraced this world of putting on a play or creating a, a story. I love the idea that whoever had a good idea, it was a good idea, whether you were a child or an adult. And it felt very democratic and safe and familiar. Do you remember any of the roles that you played when you were in this theatre club? I remember I played Wharton, who's the young boy, the little boy in uh, another country. 
by Julian Mitchell, who wrote Wild, funnily enough, which I later went with my one of my first films. And um, I remember playing Mamilius in The Winter's Tale. Such a terrific range. Did you know from very early on that you wanted to be an actor, like that was going to be a job? Yes, I suppose so, hoping that I would be, wanting to be. I remember thinking that the possibilities of being an actor on stage were realistic in that, you know, my parents would take me to see plays at Greenwich Theatre or we'd go to the National Theatre. And so the idea of getting a job there was possible, I suppose, although it was still a dream. Film, no. Film just seemed like an absolutely another world. So going to the cinema. And my mum was really good at taking me to see really interesting stuff at the, at the uh, Renoir in London and at the Prince Charles. Um, she took me to see really interesting, real art house stuff. Yeah. I read that you used to bunk off school in your uniform and take the train into central London to see films when you were a teenager. Three films in a row in Leicester Square. That's right. By the time I was in my teens, I was obsessed with film and wanting to be an actor and didn't really know how to get onto that path. I was just passionate to try and see everything. And if I knew stuff was coming out or I knew that there was only a short run at the Prince Charles, I would um, put on my uniform and then uh, get a train into town and time it so that I could see three films and come back home and walk in the front door and have dinner and pretend I'd been at school. Can you remember like an example of the kind of film that you would have made an effort to see that way? I remember seeing Diva. The French film, like a big cult film of the yeah, 80s. Yeah, big cult film of the 80s. I remember seeing Mo Better Blues, the Spike Lee film, Running on Empty, that wonderful film with uh, River Phoenix and Judd Hirsch. Down by Law, the Jim Jarmusch film, that was another one. These are good cult choices. And there's obviously a range of, of, of styles and actors and, and directing you're seeing, but was there a favourite actor who had inspired you or who was like someone you, you know, you cared about? I very quickly honed in on Gary Oldman and Tim Roth and Daniel Day-Lewis. Gary Oldman and Tim both grew up sort of in my part of town in southeast London. So to me, they were not just brilliant actors with these extraordinary range of performances and edgy quality. They were also, I knew that they'd come from southeast London. So if, in a way, they were demonstrative of, of, of a way out and that it was possible. And Danny Day-Lewis was the first uh, actor I remember just being astounded I remember seeing him in My Beautiful Laundrette and really loving that film because it felt like a London I knew. It felt it was one of the first times I'd seen a film that didn't feel other. It felt like it was on my doorstep, like I knew those guys at school and I knew that language. And then I think my mum showed me Room With A View and I literally didn't believe that it was the same actor. I couldn't believe that someone could do that. Yes, yeah, so he plays a very prissy, uptight Edwardian Italy and London are the places where I feel I truly belong. I am something of an inglese italianato. E un diavolo incarnato. You know the proverb? Those three were very much bridges because they were British and because, as I said, two of them were, were local to me. But I'd always adored Christopher Walken, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall. I mean, they're really big names that I was fortunate enough to grow up watching at the height of their powers, you know. I gather as well that you were a huge fan of sci-fi literature you know, in comic books and, and then Charlie Chaplin growing up. So tell me a bit about what you were reading as well as the films you were seeing and how you think those might have shaped 
the way that you developed your career? Chaplin was someone I just remember loving as a little boy. My father used to have a reel-to-reel and he would project Chaplin films at our birthday parties from a very young age. And then I remember seeing him on TV. They used to show wonderful Chaplin films, Buster Keaton films, Harold Lloyd, usually at around home time, I remember, you know what I mean? And they'd be on BBC Two, I seem to remember. And so I really fell in love with that sort of physical comedy and physical dance, really. And then it was later on in my late teens that I rediscovered Chaplin and uh, really became quite obsessed with this pantomimical kind of performance where you could express and tell everything with such simplicity and such clarity and the the humour of it, but also the romance of it. He seemed to me to encapsulate everything that is possible for a performer telling a story, on top of which he was scoring it, he was writing it, he was producing it, he was directing it. I've actually just finished a wonderful film called um, Sunnyside with him as the main protagonist. He's, He's still a fascination to me. What was I reading? I mean, I did like graphic novels and I liked science fiction as a kid. I wouldn't say I was obsessed. I mean, it it was perhaps a more comfortable read. I didn't really mature an appetite for sort of serious literature until a little later on. And a lot of this was led really off the back of these graphic novels. But a really important piece of writing in my late teens was um, Alan Moore's Watchmen, an extraordinary collection of um, which they've recently drawn from in this wonderful TV series. And then I think like most teens, I was maybe of my generation, I was really into the beatniks and um, this whole idea of liberating one's mind and um, living a life of adventure and expression, you know. Excellent. You left school at about 17, I think, to start your acting career in a soap, am I right? Yeah, I was, the new stages was this amateur dramatic company that I was in until I was probably about 11 or 12. And a friend of my parents saw me in a play and said that I obviously took it seriously. He suggested that I join this national youth company called the National Youth Music Theatre. And I auditioned and I got in and I used to go in the summer, we'd go away and workshop plays and take them to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And But that became a really quite an important training ground looking back. I mean, the level of professionalism, the level of responsibility put on the shoulders of children from 13 to 18 was substantial and the, the quality expected was substantial. And it was from that that I got an audition for a TV show, which I then got and made the decision to leave school. And my parents were very understanding. It is interesting looking back now as a parent, they knew that this was by then absolutely something I wanted to do. And I believed in, and I guess they believed in me and they, I promised them that if it failed, I would go back and carry on my education. And, um, I was very fortunate. I, I left and I moved to Manchester. I was 17 years old with a box. I remember a box of my of books and some stuff and a bag of clothes. And that was it. And that was the beginning of my, my independence and my uh, professional career. How did you start to find your voice as a teen actor? Because it could be nerve wracking. You're surrounded by older people. People have been in the trade for much longer. I think going back to what I said initially, I was always very drawn to the creative environment and the safety of listening and learning. I'm sure you could ask people who worked with me back then or who knew me back then and they'd say, oh my God, he wouldn't shut up or he had, you know, he had an opinion on everything. But I was also very aware that this was all about learning. If I remember rightly, I, I felt like I deserved to be there, that if you got a part, you had a right to be there. But at the same time, 
I was well aware of what I didn't know. I remember quizzing people about camera positions because I had no idea. I'd ne- I got this part on this TV show. We were working five days, six day weeks. What was the soap? It was called Families. It was an attempt by Granada TV to combine the passion for Australian soaps and English soaps. So <laughs> half of it was in Australia and half of it was English. And they kind of merged the stories. But, you know, it was, again, great training ground to learn very quickly where a camera is, how to hit a mark, how lights affect you, learning lines on a constant cycle because, you know, you've got another four episodes to do the following week. And wonderful camaraderie, wonderful community amongst the cast. Um, In 1995, you won the Ian Charlson Award, which anyone in the UK knows is the award for, you know, actors breaking out and getting recognition. And... You were nominated for a Tony and an Olivier um, as well. And this was your first big stage role. It was as Jean Cocteau play Les Perrons Terribles, which went to Broadway, um, titled as Indiscretions. And it struck me you were with Kathleen Turner in the Broadway production, no less. What impact did that whole play and the, the reception you got have winning those awards? It was more the work that really impacted me. I had done various productions in plays once I left Families, at the, the Gate, the old Hampstead Theatre Club, the Bush. I'd done plays around London, but I remember walking on the Littleton stage to do my audition. And that was when I got a, a sense of just incredible excitement and thrill because to be in the National, to be on a stage that size, I knew that if I got that part, it meant it was a big deal. And indeed, the experience, again, was sensational. I was surrounded by these four phenomenal adults, you know, Francis de la Tour, Sheila Gish, Alan Howard, real greats of the British theatre, who taught me and looked after me. Just running around backstage and being in that building was an extraordinary turning point. And indeed, taking it to Broadway, it was slightly complicated, that experience, because I was the only one who went in the end. And I felt somewhat treacherous that I had, traitorous <laughs> rather, that I'd, I'd left my, my kind of cast behind. If I'm honest with you, I've always felt like if you're asked to be in the room, then you deserve to be in the room. I personally enjoy working with actors who like to be, you know, they are there to learn. They are there to act with you. They are there to meet you eye to eye. It's a healthy starting point. Now, that maybe makes me precocious as a child, but it's just the way I was. You sound like you were always comfortable. And clearly that's partly to do with the encouragement you got from your parents that it was normal. It wasn't a... It was only until I hit really my 30s that what I was doing dawned on me. I think my whole 20s, right through till I was about 30, I had belief in myself. And it really wasn't until I suddenly looked around and thought, oh, this is my job. I have responsibilities. Also, it now has to provide for my family. What choices I make can't just be creative and whimsical. They have to be considered. It was almost like I suddenly looked down and was rather scared of the height I'd gotten to. Ah, well, this is really interesting. I saw an interview with Paul McCartney where you got a sense that Paul McCartney, if you stopped to think about being Paul McCartney, it would be like looking down from the top of the Empire State Building and it would be very scary. So he doesn't think about it. Would that potentially what happened to you? I mean, let me just read you. I was going to ask this my next question. You got cast in Gattaca, the kind of Brave New World style science fiction drama after Indiscretions on Broadway. And I was reading an interview from that time and everyone was raving about you and a lot of Hollywood people are interested in you. And Andrew Nicole, the the director said, when Jude auditioned, we all looked at each other and said, he's going to be a movie star. We just knew. 
Now, it sounds like you didn't know that, but maybe in your 30s, you were aware of that you were Jude Law, the movie star. And maybe that's what scared you. I've only really ever been interested in the acting. I love acting and I really love working with different groups of people on different projects that, that pitch different problems and, and require different approaches and different skills out of you and those around you. And that to me is what excites me and it interests me. So I didn't set out to be a movie star and I, I don't consider myself really a movie star. I think it's more of an American perspective on one's career. I'm an actor and I work in movies and I work on stage I suppose I became aware also that there's this persona who isn't me that starts to grow, which is what's written about me or how I'm perceived or, or opinions that are manifested about me, judged on something that's happened in my life or apparently happened in my life. And alongside that, the responsibilities, as I said, of suddenly realizing, gosh, this is my job and I have to make it last because I have to make sure I'm earning next year and the year after. And it's not a set in stone. So those two factors were really more responsible for me losing my head a little bit and recognising suddenly that I had to maybe really consider what I was making and, and why I was making them and who I was making them with. And um, I mean, walking down the street and being recognised is, is really a, another subject altogether. That was a peculiar offshoot of what was happening in my life as an actor. And that was something... I had to get used to alongside it. And it, that was odd. Yeah, well, looking back at some of your early roles, and I was thinking, I think you would describe your role as um, Lord Alfred Douglas in Wild, the Oscar Wilde biopic Stephen Fry in 97 as a breakout role. And it struck me even then, it's not like you're playing a conventional, you know, handsome, interesting character. He's a devious, manipulative, complicated figure. And it seems to me so often you've chosen roles which are not leading man roles, but they're really interesting. How do you look back on even that particular experience? I mean, a lot of the time, you know, one chooses simply from what one's offered. I'd done maybe one or two small films prior to that, but that felt to me like a um, really substantial part, a really interesting, complicated part in uh, a considered and intelligent period drama. Again, surrounded by really exciting and um, formidable people. Ah, leave me not to pine alone and desolate. And I love the challenge. There's a fear you get when you say yes to something or when you're asked to do something and you agree. As soon as you get it, I always get this fear of dread, really. You're suddenly faced with the challenge of pulling it off. I like that feeling. It keeps you on your toes and it forces you also to check everything. You can't just sail in. You really have to make sure no stone has gone unturned. And it forces you to ask the questions and, and also sometimes to push your comfort level. I mean, there were love scenes in that with other men that for a 24-year-old were quite explicit and quite, you know, challenging. And it was a great lesson to learn that, that one can create that kind of environment where it's comfortable for the actors and the director gets what they want and you're telling a story. So I look back very fondly. I look back with great pride, actually. I felt I'm proud of myself as a 24-year-old or whatever playing a part like that. So great. Isn't he killing Mr. Wilde? He's perfect. He's perfect in every way. In accents clear. 
Well, you know, nowadays people would be thinking they should have had an intimacy coordinator. And, you know, people think retrospectively about how much young actors were pressured into doing, and perhaps they shouldn't have been. I'm not saying you were, but... Oh, no, I wasn't pressured in at all. It was a different culture then. It was a different culture. But no, there was no pressure. Brian Gilbert, our director, was just the most wonderfully careful, caring uh, leader on that project. And I seem to remember very touchingly, he said, OK, we're going to rehearse the scene now, so I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, so I'm going to take my shirt and my top off. And so I'm new to And it was like, like, no, you don't need to. We know we have to do this. We'll do it. It's going to be fine. I mean, your roles, as I've said, have been really varied. And I was thinking about the real immersion in another world. So thinking about, you know, your southern accent in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Cold Mountain... Can you briefly talk us through the process of getting into these characters who are so alien to your own experience? Because you do it all the time and you clearly love the challenge, as you said. I suppose sometimes it's it's obvious the path you have to go down and what you maybe have to uh, accrue and, and information you have to understand or skill sets that you maybe want to examine, master. I personally have to sort of listen to myself, listen a lot to the director and what the director wants to draw out of the character and where the character fits into the piece as a whole. There's no point, I think, doing work that doesn't really lead you back to the the piece because you can waste time making all sorts of um, detailed analysis of something that never really gets drawn on. So again, it's a collaboration, I think, with the director. Going back to the fear, I think it's looking at, well, what scares me here? What do I need to face? Am I terrified about pulling off this voice? Then I've got to work on that voice. I remember agreeing to, to be in uh, Anna Christie, which is this brilliant Eugene O'Neill play, which I did at the Donmar. He's described as this sort of man-mountain Irishman and he's, he talks about kind of beating up men and how many men he's taken on and I remember finding myself halfway through the rehearsal, sort of, I'd done some movement classes and I was walking around with all these peculiar rhymes to try and get the accent right. And I was eating tons of steak, lifting weights to try and put on muscle. And I was growing this beard and I suddenly thought, I'm going mad. What am I doing? This is going to be a disaster. I sounded ridiculous. I look ridiculous. What do I think I'm doing? And I remember thinking at that moment, I'm too far down this path. I have to believe in it. And I have to know that I'm not there yet, but I may get somewhere. And, you know, you get to the end of the path and maybe you succeed, maybe you don't. But at least you've tried. You've, you've sort of looked, as I said, under the stones. You've done the work. Jude Law there speaking to Samira Ahmed. And before that, war reporter Christina Lam and adventurer Simon Reeve speaking with Kamal Ahmed. Of course, there's much more where those came from. Dig into the podcast feed and catch up on any of our great chats you might have missed. We'll be hearing a few more staff picks in the coming episodes too. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. Thanks for listening. 